I'm a writer, director, and officially have long hair again. Oh, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and some reason I'm always surprised by what you say. <laughs> Every week I go, oh. I, well, because I really am racking my brain. There's only so many ways to describe myself. I know, but then you you say yours first, and so I, I always have a very natural reaction to yours. And Thank then I'm you. like, well, fuck mine. <laughs> Like, I'm like, oh, let's talk about Allison's. I don't really have anything. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say um, worrywart, but. Who I, isn't? I know. I know. We can talk about the scary thing that happened. Sure. Basically, we were in New York for work. Mm-hmm. And the night after the, the work thing happened, like at midnight, I got a call from my dad, which is like never. A good thing. N- never what you want. Yeah. And then he was saying, and then he, it was that my mom had a heart attack. So that was crazy. Um, To clarify, she's okay. She's fine. Yeah. Yeah. She's fine. But also like, okay. So I'm sure a lot of people's parents have this, right? Where like they had parents who lived in homes with stairs. Mm -hmm. And then my parents, May May like would fall all the time and my parents would be like, Ugh, like she's so old. She shouldn't have stairs, right? And they would constantly be in a battle with her and she'd be like, I'm not old. I'm allowed to have stairs. So now my parents are are older and my parents are like live in a house with stairs, like a duplex. And they're like, oh, well, it's fine that we have stairs. And I'm like, no, you're old. When this happened, my dad, who is disabled, could not get my mom down the stairs to get her in the car. So you had to call 911 and get that, which is like good that he called 911 because the paramedics needed to be there. But like, he was like trying to get her down the stairs to get to drive her to the hospital. And like he can't because he can't carry her um, because he's in his 70s and also doesn't have the full use of one of his hands. So like I'm like, you guys can't live in a place with stairs. And they since they fought May May for years, I thought they would understand. Mm-hmm. And now they're fully May May. And they're like, no, we can live where there's stairs. It's fine. I think it is very scary to get older. Yes, I know. So it's like very scary to come to grips with that and to acknowledge that your life is not the same as it used to be. And so for a lot of people, it's easier just to act like nothing's changed. They've become the grandparents and I've become them. Yeah. But aren't they selling the house? Yeah, they're trying. They're going to. So get them in an RV, you know? (laughs) Get them in a one-story RV. Who's going to drive that RV? Then you drive that RV right to the hospital. It's perfect. (laughs) You pull up right to the hospital in a mobile home. Yeah, and you're like, I got here fast because I live in a car. That is true. Or you buy one of those like undercover cop sirens and you just put that on the top of your RV, let it it go, cut through traffic, get right to the ER. I think we solved it. Oh my God. Parents are difficult. I know. Well, I'm glad that she's okay. Yeah, yeah. Getting rest and that they figured out what it was so quickly. Yeah, she's okay. But- I guess I guess the moral here is put your parents in a mobile home. Yep. Put them in an RV so they can drive straight to the front of the hospital. And then for a lot of those parents, take away the keys and just put them in a mobile home. <laughs> and let them park. I think that's just a trailer park. Yeah. Well, that's fine. Why not? Ugh. We have a – oh, this is just between us. Oh, um, yeah, we never said. I'm so sorry. What if someone's listening for the first time and like, this is a weirdly personal show. Like, like, what is this about? So Just Between Us is a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. So this week we're going to be interviewing our guest, Andrew Morantz, uh, about online extremism. He has a book called Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. And later we're going to be discussing why – why do people insist sexism in politics doesn't exist? Oh, evergreen. An evergreen topic. But first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Sophia, New York. Sophia's question says, With the confirmation of coronavirus cases in NYC, my OCD is being triggered all over the place. I have Tourette's and deal with OCD, ADD, and severe anxiety. I moved to Brooklyn a few months ago and have been learning through all the ways my OCD is challenged in a densely populated area while taking public transit all the time. 
I feel like I've been approaching it rationally, and I'm really proud of myself. But the impending spread of the coronavirus has been been triggering for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Since I already wash my hands so often, my OCD is itching to start wearing gloves everywhere. I don't yet have a solid therapy solution since moving, but have been talking to my support system about this. I know true steps to take surrounding this need to come from the healthcare field, but I'm interested in your hot take. Okay, how's your OCD been doing? As of right now, so it is March 12th, and uh, coronavirus is ramping up. Uh, I'm losing my fucking mind. How are you? (sighs) Okay, so what is interesting to me is that I'm not worried about getting the virus. What? I am young. I'm healthy. I think that more than likely, most people are going to get it. But the issue is that, well, there's tons of issues. The issue is that a lot of people are not young and healthy, and it's a huge risk, and I don't want to be a part of spreading it. But I'm in doing the safety precautions to prevent spreading the virus, which is washing my hands all the time, purelling, wiping everything down, wearing gloves, not going outside as much. <laughs> Were you like, this was my daily life anyway? Nothing has really changed for you. So not lately. I mean, my OCD has been super under control. So the issue is that now we're like unleashing the beast. Yeah, where you're supposed to be having all these behaviors that were negative. Right. So you're like opening this Pandora's box of giving in to those habits and symptoms and compulsions. And so like for me, like I'm going to go home and I'm going to take my second shower of the day. Yep. And I, I haven't been second showering in a long time. I don't. I, that's the thing I don't but normally do. But now you're do. congratulated for having your bad behaviors. Or I'm just like allowed to do to start them, and I'm encouraged to start them. And it's really hard to know how to stop and where to stop. It's not that I'm freaking out about the virus germs. I'm now just freaking out about all germs and contamination in general. Okay, because you're allowed to. Or just because I've opened this box of like you know yeah. it's it's hard to stop, and so. I'm worried about getting back to normal, mm-hmm. but I have to know that I I will, and that like you <laughs> and that like Sophia like when this passes, which it will, okay, you will be able to get back to normal. It's going to be work, and it's going to be the work that you've already put in, so it's like annoying to have to go do that again. But like you will be able to, and you have to also stop catastrophizing. Oh no, and stop getting news information from everywhere. Uh Uh-oh. So I would, if you're someone who's really dealing with anxiety about this, I would pick one or two news sources, like maybe just the CDC and the World (laughs) Health Organization, and just get your information from there. Take a break from social media. Don't give in to the craziness of that. Don't get into, like, fights with your friends who are like, it's just the flu. Like, just take yourself out of it as much as possible and just, like, be – vigilant in like the couple of ways that we've discussed and then other than that you just have to like recognize that this is a weird time and that your anxiety is going to be acting out but that that doesn't mean that you're in immediate danger um Sophia turn this off turn this (laughs) off right now I kind of disagree I feel very much like it is the end of times now could that be anxiety and bipolar disorder yeah but I'm pretty, I'm pretty on edge and like pretty nervous and like kind of worried that like when I see people joking about it on Twitter, I'm like, you're, you're, I understand that there's gallows humor and that people are allowed to express themselves in a bunch of ways, but I'm, it makes me like kind of angry because I'm like, this is not a joke. Like, no, and I don't think it's a joke, but I, I also think that there's only so much you can there's do. There's only so much you can do. And that, like, I want to slow the spread. Yeah. We are not ready for it. Um, and so I'm, I mean, it, this believe me, this is not me saying that, like, this is not a serious thing. No, no, no. I, I know. And I know, I know you're saying that it's, it's hard to know, like, what you can control and what you can't control and trying to control everything. You know what's interesting is that I've been seeing people posting ways in which to, like, help like buying merch from artists who can't tour anymore or um, sending Amazon wishlist stuff to people who are immunocompromised or whatever. And so that's really been the only thing that's been 
helping me is like being able to to do small acts of helping for other people. Yeah. That's the only thing that's keeping me from totally losing my mind is that we have the the capacity to still help each other in ways in which the government has failed all of us. Um, I, I'm just trying to prevent, on top of there being a, a pandemic, yeah. there being a mental health crisis. Yes, as and well. so helping so, others is a way to take your mind off your your own. Right. And like expressing gratitude for what you do have, you know, like let this is a great time to call our parents and to tell Mm -hmm. them how much we love them and that we want them to be safe. And, you know, but I I think that this is a potential thing to push a lot of people into crisis. Right. And we just got to put up we got to like put up our preventive measures to, to not let ourselves go there as much as possible. Yeah. Because that part doesn't help anything. If anything, being stressed and anxious lowers your immune system. Yeah, I know. So the best thing that we can do is just be vigilant Mm -hmm. and to not be stupid and to not, like, go about spreading this thing because, like, who cares? No, like, absolutely do your, you know, your civic responsibility to try to control this thing as much as possible. But do not – the stuff in your mind isn't going to fix or solve anything. the physical problems, yeah. And so learning to talk yourself down. Yeah. Remembering that, like, in – in 1918, there was an epidemic. There was a People big... died! Absolutely. But the world continued. For you to say it's like the apocalypse, like, it's okay, not. Okay, well, mark my words. If in three weeks when this episode comes out, uh, it is the apocalypse... I doubt that it will come out if it's the apocalypse. <laughs> no, it will. Stitcher's ever... the only thing still working. <laughs> I, I... Look, on this show, I think we can say that this is another episode of Gabby's Conspiracy Corner Mm -hmm. in which I turn into coast to coast FM or whatever. But even you vocalizing these thoughts and feelings is you doing harm to yourself. Things are going to change. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of economic impact. It's going to be so bad. I'm not at all saying that this is not a huge deal. It absolutely is. And I will also say that the unknown is one of anxiety's favorite Yep. Like favorite things to fester on. It it loves to feed off of mm-hmm. the unknown. And this is probably one of the biggest unknowns that we have faced in our lifetime, mm-hmm. if not the biggest. Mm-hmm. So it makes 100% sense that you are feeling this way. But I think it's even more important to use those tools that we've learned and that we've cultivated and that we've worked so hard to develop during this time. Okay. So I shouldn't say all the things that I, I think are going to happen. There's unknown in life regardless yeah but now it's like love in the time of cholera shit but but what is like what is you that's not helping i think of it a lot like when they say in the mental health world you're in crisis yeah like when you're in crisis things are just different and the way that you approach things are differently and the crisis is is the number one focus it's Mm -hmm. getting you through that crisis and then once you're through that crisis then we deal with the fallout and all and putting all the pieces back together so right now we're in crisis we just have to get this thing under control and then let's focus on the fallout but like right now i don't have high hopes great i'm so glad you're my co-host on this podcast (laughs) you know meant to help people we're opposites i think i'm helping by saying the truth and, you know, maybe this episode will come out. Maybe it won't. I hope it comes out and you're right. You know what I mean? I just... <laughs> Sophia, turn this off. Turn this off. I'm sorry. If you want to submit your international question because you believe that there will still be this podcast, <laughs> please send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview coming up with our highly esteemed guest, Andrew Morantz, author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Hi, everyone. Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books, and that is why I am so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best 
new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box. And there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options. Shipping is always free. And with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment. And she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out. And she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic, trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in book of the month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week, we're talking to Andrew Morantz. He is the author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Got uh, my last name exactly right. I did. Yeah. Well, I did because I dated someone with that same last name. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, rough one. Okay. So we want to talk to you about online extremism. Um, yeah. Could you just yeah. first kind of talk us through uh, the premise of the book and what you did in terms of going deep undercover? Well, so a couple of things. First of all, extremism, even though I put it in the subtitle of my book, it's still not my favorite word um, because it, it sort of implies that um, – the thing to fear is the fact of having an extreme opinion, which I don't actually really believe. I don't think that there's an, any inherent problem with having an extreme opinion. I just think some are bad and some are good. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that a lot of the people I was dealing with were racist. Some of them were misogynist. Some of them were Islamophobic. Some of them were anti-Semitic. So I couldn't really, there was no good way to wrap my arms around all of that in a subtitle. Um, so the reason I ended up charting this territory was not that I was like masochistically interested in just who are the worst people on the internet and how can I spend more time with them? (laughs) It was, it was more, um, I was just sort of interested in, um, the thought experiment more or less of what is the internet doing to us as a society? Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, 2014, 2015, I was really thinking about, um, okay, it seems like more and more of our attention economy and more and more of our lives are being given over to this massive set of algorithms and, you know, a few dudes in hoodies in Silicon Valley who are deciding what we do with our time and attention and how we feel at any given moment and sort of what is that doing to our brains and what is it maybe doing to our polity and our democratic society. And at first that sort of seemed like a kind of a business story maybe, or a tech story, or maybe a media story, you know, newspapers are going out of business and clickbait farms are arising in their place, or, you know, it's harder and harder to find true information and all those sort of things were stirring around in my head. And then June, 2015, big orange buffoon comes down the escalator in New York city and announces he's running for president. And suddenly (laughs) this is the story at the center of American politics. And mm-hmm. so all of that kind of stirred together and I went, okay, I need to find a way to tell this story, not just sort of standing on a soapbox and shouting about how I think the internet is bad, although I do and I say some of that stuff in the book, but I, it, it's more like, how do I tell this story? How do I get close to the people and factors that are making this happen and then be a fly on the wall and watch how exactly it's happening? So a lot of the premise of the book is that these tech giants like Facebook um, and Reddit and all those things have really opened the way for like it to be taken over by racists and extremists and neo-Nazis. Right. And so Mm -hmm. do you think that there's any sense of responsibility in Silicon Valley for having done that? Definitely. There is a sense of responsibility. It's just that they don't always take that responsibility very seriously. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they deny outright that they have that responsibility. Sometimes they kind of fudge it and say, 
yes, we're, we're working on it. That's a very difficult problem, but you know, what are we supposed to do? This is so terribly difficult, even though, you know, they spent the last 15 years telling us that they are the most powerful, well-resourced geniuses in the world who can take on any problem. And suddenly this is the problem that stumps them. Um, I mean, I, I should say in fairness to the people who run these platforms, it is a really difficult problem to figure out how to stamp out all misinformation and all disinformation and all hate speech on the internet. But these are the same people who told us that they can fix global health, they can fix climate change, they can fix problems of AI, they can you know, disrupt every existing industry and technology. And yet the one thing that they are directly responsible for breaking, which is how information moves across platforms and into our brains, that somehow is the one thing that stumps them, which I, I just think is a cop out. So do you think that they have abilities to do more and they're just choosing not to? Uh, yes, I do. One thing is a question of in, of investment of resources and a question of priorities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it were a priority for Facebook to hire 100 times more content moderators and, you know, to constantly be tweaking their rules and and constantly be tweaking their policies, they could do a lot more. Um, they do a lot of things that are a drop in the bucket. You know, they hire um, agencies to do fact checking for them, but it's, you know, the fact checking ends up covering I think last time I checked, you know, one or 2% of the content on the platform. So some of it is just about numbers and about scaling up the response. Um, And, you know, I will limit the number of times I use viral metaphors in this discussion, given that we're currently experiencing an actual viral pandemic. But a lot of a lot of the response, as with a public health outbreak, is just how much you do and how quickly. It's not binary. Like, are you doing something or are you not? It's Mm -hmm. how much are you actually investing in the response? The, The other thing I would say is there's like a deeper core problem than that, which is not only how many moderators do you hire and how well do you treat them and, you know, how much do you fact check things? It's also what at its core is your algorithm built to incentivize? Like if, if, if you build the biggest informational systems in human history and you build them directly incentivizing things that incite fear, outrage, uh, paranoia, uh, what I call antisocial emotions. Um, and of course you, you also incentivize, you know, awe and humor and, you know, other pro-social emotions, but if if the easiest way to get things to go viral on those platforms is to make people fearful and twitchy and afraid, there's always going to be someone who's willing to supply that drug. Mm-hmm. So it's not a coincidence. It's not that they can just keep, you know, picking up a bucket and bailing out the boat and saying, gee, I wonder why this boat is still sinking. It's because you built the boat with holes in it. So well, there, there are just much deeper structural issues to address. Not even structural issues, but like social issues uh, in terms of like why these people are drawn to this or why these people behave this way to begin with. I mean, before the Internet, like extremists or, you know, neo-Nazis or whatever, they gathered in person or they had, you know, I think maybe correct me if I'm wrong, more limited capabilities and now it's sort of like they can gather from all corners of the world and they've they've really done that. Definitely, definitely. And 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 I should be clear, racism and propaganda and fake news were not invented in nineteen eighty when the internet became widely distributed. These things have always existed. And in fact, there is a part of my book where, you know, I kind of end the first chapter where I've been in DC at this party called the Deplorable, which is this very funny pun that these self-described deplorables use to uh, name their inauguration party where they're all kind of spiking the football and saying, look at us, we memed Donald Trump into the White House. So I'm, you know, reporting. Yeah, super cool. So I'm reporting from that party and kind of just getting way down into the muck of the internet fascist universe. I also jumped back in the book and the second chapter starts with 1476 and how the printing press spread fake news throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. So these problems were not invented in January 2017 when Donald Trump was inaugurated. They weren't invented with the Internet, but they have been given unprecedented scope and force and speed. The printing press also spread a lot of misinformation, including medical misinformation, including anti-Semitic tracts. I mean, including misogyny, sort of everything we see now has always existed. 
it's been a question of scale and it's also been a question of whether the information stream goes both ways. So not only are you able to print misinformation, but you're also able to be directly incentivized by it, by the kind of reactions you provoke. Where does this come from within these people? Is it is it a mix of craving power and also like, I imagine, intense hopelessness? Yes, I think you're right. I mean, I get pretty deep into the personal stories and psychologies of various people, probably, you know, a dozen people. And it wasn't, again, because I, you know, wanted to lionize them or give them some grand, you know, biography or, or legitimacy, but because I do think we have to understand this stuff mm-hmm. at a deep level. If we want to, you know, it's one thing to sort of brush it off and say, like, these people are garbage people. And, you know, that may or may not be true, but they are doing it for reasons. And we need to understand what those reasons are, if not excuse them. Some of the time it was just a kind of... um sort of like uh, desire for attention gone haywire. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes there would be people who just, you know, like the kid in the back of the class who just will get the teacher's attention by any means necessary, right. whether that means jumping up and down or acting out or flicking the kid's ears in the class or whatever it takes. So it's some of that. Some of it is financial. Some of it is just purely people spying an opportunistic business opportunity. Some of it is true ideology. And, and there are you know, like people who actually get red pilled into like full on Nazi territory. And I actually spent a long time in the book um, charting the story of one young woman who was a perfectly charming and lovely and smart young lady who just essentially dated the wrong guy. And he was on 4chan too much. And he ended up kind of pulling her down this rabbit hole where she, um, long story short, kind of ended up in Charlottesville holding a tiki torch um, because of just essentially looking at enough information that she had never been told before and not having the kind of educational background to be able to rebut it mm-hmm. herself and kind of entering a world and a set of podcasts and a set of websites and just a, a, a social and discursive community that even though it was happening online, it made her feel like she was important. It made her feel like she was part of something in a way that nothing else in her life had ever been able to achieve. And so people are social creatures and people are also really bizarre creatures. And, you know, sometimes even if you have a kind of moral intuition that, you know, I don't think my parents would be proud of what I'm doing right now or whatever the case may be, you can still be drawn along by sort of subtle means of indoctrination or people thinking you're cute or funny or powerful or whatever into literally the worst ideas in the universe. Do you think that if there was less economic disparity in this country, it wouldn't be the same online? Yeah, I think reducing economic disparity would help. I also think it would just be inherently a good thing to do, but I think um, it would help. I think, but you know what? It's not a cure-all solution because a lot of the people in the book uh, came from very comfortable, progressive, upper-middle-class kind of, you know, Volvo hatchback driving mm-hmm. communities. So some of it is, you know, people scrambling to get by. And that's a factor in a lot of areas of American life. But it's not universal. A lot of times it was people who had the luxury to, you know, spend a lot of time goofing off online who then found themselves in some of the worst rabbit holes. So I definitely think material conditions matter a lot. But I also think that, you know, there's kind of a problem at the core of the human soul that also has to be addressed. Yeah, there's this ongoing thing that I don't like where it's this idea that um, the the bad guys are uneducated and they, they're rednecks or they're um, poverty level. Uh, when a lot of times it, it does come down to racism and xenophobia and it and privilege and then it's almost like the, the devil wears Prada. Like the things that are mm-hmm. – it's easy to dismiss – the uneducated people, but it's when people are hyper-educated and come into these communities and can take advantage and become leaders there. Yeah. Well, I, I work at Condé Nast, so I can't comment on the Devil Wears Prada, but I will say that... Um, <laughs> I, I just um, meant the saying, uh, the Devil Wears Prada, not the actual <laughs> f- feature film, the Devil Wears Prada. But um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's misleading. I, I mean, and, and pr- part of the reason why I wrote 
about such specific people in so much specific detail is a just for narrative purposes to bring people inside this world but b to show examples of how this stuff works so it's not all just at a high-flying sociological level so Mm -hmm. you can actually see like the a to b of how someone gets involved exactly exactly and it is almost never the people you would expect it to be i mean one guy who i you know, sort of traced back a few kind of disinformation and propaganda memes. I went to his house. It was this nice sort of sunny condo in Orange County, California. He had a wife uh, who was not white, by the way, and he had a baby and he was, you know, about 40 years old. He was a lawyer. He, um, you know, took his dog out for hikes in the mountains. And then he came home and, you know, sewed viral streaks of disinformation across the internet that uh, materially decreased the likelihood that Hillary Clinton would win the 2016 election. Um, You know, I spent a bunch of time with a guy who grew up in idyllic kind of um, suburban New Jersey. His parents were college professors and he, um, uh, he was married to a woman who was Jewish. He had an adopted brother who was uh, biracial and he ended up being Uh, essentially the leading propagandist of the neo-Nazi online movement. Did his wife stay with him? Mm, Well, yeah, no spoilers, but it was a very, it was a big strain on their marriage, (laughs) put it that way. (laughs) Wow. Um, But yeah, the the point being, it's never, it's never exactly what you think. And we, we have to pay attention to what the specifics are and not, as you say, paint with a broad brush and say, uh, if, if a certain type of person could be remediated, then this would all just go away. I feel like it's joining a cult, but it's joining a cult in a way that you can maintain 80%, 90% of your regular life, but you're in a cult, you know? And so I feel like, honestly, like probably the through line of the people that get sucked into this are people who would like the 1970s, maybe have like joined the Moonies. Like there's, yeah, there's this element Mm -hmm. of like, you know, dichotomous thinking and it's like, I think it's almost like that personality type versus like socioeconomic, like race stuff that gets sucked into it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there are definitely cult-like elements. Um, One thing I would add though, is that the Moonies, for example, were not only, you know, sort of pernicious because they were doing what they were doing in Madison Square Garden or whatever, or holding mass weddings. There's also another element, which is they bought the Washington Times and disseminated their propaganda through a newspaper. Now, that's one thing to own one newspaper. It's another thing when you are an expert at hacking and reverse engineering entire news cycles based on uh, social media. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to be a small fringe cult of whatever the case may be, you know, pickup artists or neo-Nazis or, you know, anti-vaxxers or whatever. It's another thing when you make it your career, essentially, to propel the memes and ideas that you want to propel into the mainstream of American discourse. So, you know, it's not just that you're going around with your hundred fringe friends or whatever. It's also that you are making talking points propel their way into the national discourse and eventually end up on the Drudge Report or in Tucker Carlson's mouth or in the president's mouth. It's more far reaching, but I feel like it comes from that same that that same dynamic of falling into something like that. And desiring mm-hmm. community, desiring to be lauded. It's like a, a high to for someone to like a group of people to be like, that was great. You did a good job. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, there's definitely that personal element. But I, I also think, you know, for everyone else, there's there's a question of not only you know, what's going on with, with these particular individuals from a just curiosity sociological standpoint, but also how does it affect everyone else? And I think one of the ways it affects everyone else is that we all live in the national discourse that is shaped by this stuff, whether we have any direct contact with it or not. Yeah, people have died. It's not just on the internet. Like it's someone mm-hmm. died at Charlottesville. Like it's real. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, not only not only did someone die in Charlottesville, but I mean, we I, I, I think it's very safe to say that if it were not for the people I write about and their disproportionate success at sort of reverse engineering news cycles and how we think and talk in this country, we would not have Donald Trump as a president. And that right. has killed a lot more people than, you know, than one. So right. 
you know, these things, it's, you know, not to be alarmist about it, but, you know, the, the, the way people talk and think and act as a nation has really severe consequences. You can't always, you know, play them all out in a specific way, but, you know, the water you swim in ideologically affects everything about your life. Can you speak to a little bit about the the scope of the misinformation in the 2016 campaign? Yeah, there. Um, so some of it is kind of lost to history. Um, now, um, Facebook has an ad library, so we can see all the ads that are being run if you have the time and the ability to kind of parse through everything because there's millions and millions of them. But uh, before that, they didn't have one. So we don't know the extent of which super PACs were running, which fake ads. We do know the ones that were preserved. Um, there were all kinds of things being pumped out by, you know, official super PACs that were saying, you know, Hillary Clinton is on steroids because she has some unspecified neurological condition, or, you know, she's actually the one who's in the pocket of Vladimir Putin or, you know, just sort of flooding the zone with bullshit. And um, we know it worked because, well, I mean, you don't have a control group, right? You don't have a counterfactual, but it seems very clear that it worked based on turnout numbers and based on, you know, which pockets of people were micro-targeted. You know, it's possible with these platforms to carve the electorate into, you know, hockey moms who live within five miles of a military base in Michigan Mm -hmm. and, you know, target them with a particular kind of ad with a particular emotional palette at 5.30 in the afternoon when they're drinking a glass of white wine. I mean, the the level of consumer information and geo-targeted information and, you know, the, the amount of data that can be exploited by any advertiser, frankly, whether commercial or political or whatever, means that campaigns can now carve up the electorate and target them with vastly different messaging. And it would be naive to think that that has no effect. Obviously, a lot of people blame the Russians for misinformation. But what you're speaking to is that literally the Republican Party is also participating and actively actively spreading the misinformation. Yes, there is. I mean, some of the some of the ads, you know, that the Trump campaign and affiliated super PACs put out, uh, some of them were standard stuff. You know, uh, Trump will keep us safe. uh, Donate here. But a lot of it was straight up lies or either racist dog whistles or coded misogyny or whatever. I mean, that, that has been well observed and well documented. And um, yeah, just as a sense of scale, the internet research agency from Russia bought 3,500 Facebook ads in the 2016 election. The Trump campaign itself bought 5.9 million. Oh my God. Um, can we talk about something that I see going around today that I wonder if it if it's a similar uh, situation to 2016, this pervasive thing that Joe Biden has dementia? Like, is that sort of the type of thing that we should be looking out for now? Is that what are the sort of campaigns that they're running now? Yeah, it's a very interesting chess case, that particular one, because, you know, you take you take the split of Facebook versus Twitter. So Facebook has essentially said any politician can say anything he or she wants on our platform. Basically, there are a couple of things they will restrict. Like you can't literally lie about what day voting is happening. Uh, But pretty much anything else you can do or say. So when the Trump campaign puts out an ad, Facebook doesn't fact check it. They don't put a little warning on it saying this is full of blatant lies. So in October, when Trump campaign made this big, expensive ad saying, actually, the media is telling you that the Ukraine corruption scandal is about Donald Trump being corrupt, but actually it's about Joe Biden being corrupt. Mm-hmm. That was not true, but they said it. And the Biden campaign complained to Facebook and said, can you take this ad down? And Facebook said, no, nope, that's not what we do. Uh, politicians, anything they say is newsworthy and therefore we make exceptions. Oh, my God. That was protested widely, both publicly and also inside the company. There were hundreds of Facebook employees who were livid about that, and they suggested many narrowly tailored, specific ways that Facebook could change that policy. And the Facebook leadership said, no, thanks. We're good. We're just going to keep doing this. Now, Twitter is trying to be a little bit more proactive about labeling things. So 
there was a video recently that was put out by Dan Scavino, who's the um, the social media director for Trump. He put out a video of Biden uh, seemingly saying, we got it. We have to elect Donald Trump. And he was, you know, getting his words twisted up. And he eventually finished the sentence by saying, no, that's not what I mean. Uh, they cut that video in half and ran it and Twitter put a little label on it saying this is manipulated media. And there was a big debate about whether, well, there was a debate about whether it was manipulated media or whether it was just out of context, sort of cut off in the middle of a sentence media. Mm -hmm. And this is where you get into things like, okay, that wasn't like a deep fake. It wasn't like they were faking it. It was just that they, you know, cut it at the moment that was most favorable to them. So these are going to be really squishy gray area things for a long, long time to come. Could you take us through potentially like an example of how like a extremist group or neo-Nazis or someone can take over the news cycle and change the story and how they would go about doing that? Yeah. And I think it's, um, for example, I spent a bunch of time with the guys who invented the triple parentheses thing. Mm. Um, And, you know, they originally, it started on a podcast where they would put an echo sound behind anyone with a Jewish name. And it was kind of a joke, but it was also kind of their sincere attempt to name the Jew as they called it. They're, they're, they're very obsessed with this. Yeah. Very cool. They're, they're, they're obsessed with this idea that Jews are everywhere. They walk among us. They seem white, but they're not actually white. This also was very fun for them when I would go interview them and they would all be like, wait, 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 are you a Jew or what's going on? And I was like, guys, if you're professional anti-Semites and you can't tell that I'm Jewish, <laughs> yeah. like, what, what are you what are you doing? Yeah, Jews are everywhere. Like, There's is... three of us on this here podcast. <laughs> I mean, if your literal whole job is telling people where the Jews are and you can't figure me out, like you gotta <laughs> you gotta step up your game. But um but they uh Can you explain what that is, the three parentheses thing? Yeah, they started doing it in order to mark Jewish people. And their intention was to show how Jews were everywhere. So they would, they would try to, you know, there was actually an app that they uploaded or an extension that they uploaded to Google Chrome where you could add triple parentheses to news articles. So you could be, you could make it so that when you were reading an article that said today, George Soros gave a speech about immigration policy, it would add three parentheses before and after Soros's name, because their idea was that the part of how they were going to red pill the white, normie masses was to show them you guys don't realize it but the the jews are everywhere um and that that was going to raise their consciousness about how they had to expel jews from the country essentially essentially so um then it migrated out of these hardcore anti-semitic white nationalist circles and into wider circulation and people on twitter like jewish people started putting three parentheses around their own names as a kind of attempt to reclaim it and make Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. not so scary. And um, then it just became kind of like everything else on the internet. It just became a thing that people, you know, mocked and made fun of and talked about winkingly and ironically. And, you know, then it sort of became like the only rule of the internet, which is like, don't take anything too seriously. But it started from an extremely serious place. If you had complete control over restructuring the internet, what would your version of the internet look like? I would try to get social media algorithms not to optimize for emotional engagement. Hmm. So every, every algorithm is always optimizing for something. It could, it could be optimizing for how much time you spend on site. It could be optimizing for how good you feel after you log off. I mean, it could, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, YouTube's optimization uh, metric for a long time was just how long can we keep you on YouTube, which led right, people to, right. <laughs> which was extremely dangerous for a variety of reasons, addiction reasons, and also radicalization reasons with things like Facebook and Twitter. The things that the algorithm measures is speed and volume of response. Mm-hmm. How many people are, how many people are commenting? How many people are saving? How many people are sharing? It's all the responses of virality. And what that does is the content that's the most engaging is the content that is perennially going to be incentivized. And we know that it's the easiest way to get people to engage with something is to 
give them an easy hate read or give them something that they will make a rage comment about or right. whatever. And it just so that. So if I could change one thing, it would be that. Before we, we move on to the game show portion of this game. <laughs> of this very light episode. Um, uh, what can people do to um, prevent the spread of misinformation and also from themselves just like believing misinformation as the 2020 election is happening and as we're dealing with a sure. pandemic? Yeah, I would say that even more so. Um, so one thing... Um, you can do to stop the spread of things is to not spread them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can um, not react to things with your um, lizard brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way that these algorithms kind of want you to respond is by, you know, smashing the first button you see and typing the first thing you think. And, you know, they're, they're, they're measuring all that. And they're even measuring how quickly you scroll by something or whether you kind of linger over it. Uh-huh. Um, so, you you can always take a breath. You can always read a little bit more. You can always just think one or two beats harder about what you're sharing. Um, you can also be proactive about um, making stuff that's better and giving people other pathways to go down that are not destructive. Um, and you can also, you know, make efforts to have a collective movement to put pressure on these companies. I mean, I think the informational crisis is kind of like, you know, the climate crisis or something where the companies themselves are not necessarily incentivized to fix it. But if there's a movement that causes them to feel pressure to not simply follow their old business model and do nothing, then that's at least a countervailing force. And if it becomes obvious to them that people are not just sort of going to put up with you know, disinformation and radicalization and addiction and data surveillance and all this stuff, if, they, if it becomes clear to them that people are pissed off about it, then at least there's something pushing against the voice in their other ear, which is how fast can we get the stock price to go up? And like, should and is it really important to check like where the source of the information is coming from? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, I think, I think we're at a point now where people know that they can't believe everything they read on the internet, but you know, you also don't want to believe nothing you read on the internet. Right. I, you know, you can, there is reliable information out there. And it's not like I think that everybody, the only solution is to just throw all your devices into a river. I mean, I think. Good plan. You can, we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should, we should. But I think, you know, there are reliable news sources out of there. I mean, the bad news is that often they're the ones you have to pay for. But mm-hmm. um, the platforms are designed to make everything look flat and make it look like every link is exactly the same as every other link. And unfortunately, that's not true. And so you have to kind of work against the design of these platforms and work a little bit counterintuitively to go, oh, actually, one of these might be the best life-saving advice and the other one might be dangerous junk. And, you know, you, you just you have to work harder. Yeah. And Americans love to work harder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, now it's the game show section. We're going to play a game called Hypotheticals. I'm going to give you and Gabby, my two contestants, some hypothetical situations. You're going to ask as many questions as you want and then um, tell me what you would do. And then I just arbitrarily decide if I like your answer. <laughs> we will not win. <laughs> so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your significant other of three years had a one-night stand that didn't mean anything to them, and they regret it immensely. Just when you are about to forgive them, they admit the affair was with Mark Zuckerberg. Would you stay with this cheater? <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I went straight from hard yes to hard no. <laughs> In the midst of asking that question. Wow. I mean, especially especially given that my wife has edited multiple drafts of my book and she would know what a personal betrayal that was. There's, there's no way. That's true. There's no real personal betrayal on my end having to do with Mark Zuckerberg. I would just have a lot of questions about. He was the- wearing a very nice hoodie when it happened. Ah. Not his classic, a <laughs> and, super fitted nice hoodie. And he was cheating on his partner as well. Oh, well they're open. Are they? Who knows? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm with. Uh, I'm with Andrew. I'm gonna say a hard no. Well, that's good because the significant other goes on to become Mark Zuckerberg's second wife. 
What? Because Mark Zuckerberg doesn't <laughs> care about rules. Oh, you're right. He doesn't care about people. How could I have yeah. been so blind? <laughs> of course he doesn't care pay. about people. Our next game is, are they an alien or just rude? You've started a somewhat popular food blog. On every post, an anonymous stranger tells you that, quote, life will be better once you get beamed up. So go sit in a field somewhere. Okay. They comment that on every post? On every post you have. Okay. When you go to this stranger's profile, it's a photo of the alien from Mars Attacks. Is this person an alien or just rude? (laughs) All their other comments on other people's blogs involve correcting grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go with C. That person is my sister. Oh, a personal troll. Yeah, I think that would, I think that combined with the grammar stuff, it would be an irresistible trail of breadcrumbs for me. And I think she knows it. <laughs> Fascinating. Does she love Mars attacks? Yeah. And, and, and she's, I think she would be, I think it would be just sophisticated enough for her to be her handiwork. I, I say that it is an alien because, but I'm curious as to why they're so hyper-focused on saving me. Well, let me tell you, it's because you're meant to save them. Oh, I'm an alien mm. like Messiah. Yeah, but also, just to be clear, it is the aliens from Mars Attacks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't really like remember Mars Attacks. the production thought that it was people in costumes, but it was really these aliens. Whoa. I really, really like that movie a lot. So there you go. So you'd probably like them too. Did the aliens get mm-hmm. SAG day rates or were they non-union? They were non-union. Because <laughs> we don't give, you know, foreigners the, their rights. Wow. Ah, well, this game got political. (laughs) Okay, our final game. Would you lie or tell the truth? In this scenario, you're an investigative journalist. So just try to imagine that, both of you. (laughs) Yeah, a job neither of us have had. (laughs) Through your research, you discover that your daughter's kindergarten teacher used to be an active member of the alt-right, but has since left the community. When the other parents ask you what you think of the teacher, do you lie or tell the truth? Also, your child still does not know how to read. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew? Uh, First of all, I can say that many members of the alt-right are quite good at reading. And second, um, um, I would have to tell the truth. And I would also write a 400-page book about it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that'd be irresistible for you. Even though they've already left Mm -hmm. the community and renounced it. it. Oh, that's even better. Then you have an ending. Um, wow. I like your hustle. Uh, I think maybe I would talk to the teacher separately. No, I would, I love gossip. I'm a Gemini. I would fully be like, guys, guess what I found out? <laughs> this shit is crazy. But I wouldn't necessarily, like, if they had denou- written a whole thing denouncing it or, like, if they were, like, you know, big into, like, countermeasures, I guess no, I would. it's all private in their own life. How do you know they denounced it then? Uh, because of your investigative journalism. Oh, right. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I think I would put my kid in a different class. Well, I hate to tell you guys, but this is the other person who's going to help save those aliens from Mars Attack, and you'll be teaming up real soon. Wow, I want to see that buddy comedy. (laughs) It's coming your way 2024 if we still have movies. (laughs) That is going to be a very interesting flying saucer ride back home. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find more of your work? Um, I'm Andrew Morantz on Twitter, where I talk about how social media is bad. And, um, sure. yeah, they can check out the book, Antisocial. It's in your local library. It's on IndieBound and all the other places. And, uh, yeah, thanks, guys. This is fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a really interesting discussion. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about why people love to insist sexism in politics doesn't exist. Woo! This is a really uplifting episode. <laughs> Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. Baby. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. And now let's get into something lighter. Sexism in politics. Oh, I want to die. Okay, here we go. So obviously all of the female candidates have dropped out of the primary. Yep. What prompted me to pick this topic was like, 
when Warren did so poorly on Super Tuesday, like, my mom and I were kind of talking to my dad about it. And, like, my dad sort of, like, refused to acknowledge that sexism played a part in it. That's hilarious. And, you know, he's a liberal guy. He's a well-educated guy. I don't find him to be sexist at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, he live, is, lives surrounded by women. His wife, yeah. his two daughters, his two grandnieces. No, his two granddaughters. <laughs> They're my nieces. Um, and I was just so curious about, like, why people refuse to see what's happening. I mean, I think even if you are not sexist and you grow up and you're around women all the time, you still, if you are a cis straight white man, you still have blinders. There's just blinders that are just there. I really, I mean, I have had a a lot of arguments with people who you would think would know better about the situation with Warren where... This was like the most prepared candidate. Mm-hmm. Like, and yes, there were issues, obviously, but every fucking candidate has issues. Right. People don't want to vote for a woman. That's it. That's all it is. They don't want to vote for a woman. So here's, here's. Do you think they know that on a conscious level no. or it's subconscious? No, it's subconscious. Yeah. Some do consciously know and right. others don't. Now, here's my concern because, and, and I've been criticized for this. So you tell me if I'm wrong. So Hillary Clinton runs. Obviously, she's got a lot of issues and a lot of and a lot of um, baggage. Yes. So people are like, oh, I, I would vote for a woman, but I don't want to vote for Hillary. So I can't wait till Elizabeth Warren runs. Then Elizabeth Warren runs and then everyone goes, oh, I, I would vote for a woman. But Elizabeth Warren has X, Y and Z problems. Uh, and also like, you know, some problems legitimate. Other problems just like she reminds me of a teacher I didn't like or whatever. Then. So then Elizabeth Warren, arguably the most prepared candidate of all time, doesn't get the votes or whatever. She drops out. Now, my concern is that they're like, no, it wasn't about not wanting to vote for a woman. If there was a different woman that didn't have this specific problem, I would vote for them. Okay, so then when that woman comes up, whoever she is, the next one. They're going to find a problem with her. Right. And then the next one that comes up, they're going to find a problem with her. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had people argue with me saying, well, no, if a woman did come up and had a very clean voting record and was like very um, and like didn't have any scandals, of course we would vote for her. It's that it's X, Y and Z about Hillary we didn't like. It's X, Y and Z about Elizabeth Warren we didn't like. And so my concern is like now when I hear people um, having rumblings about AOC, right? They're like, oh, we want her to run when she's old enough. We want her to run for president. That's a female president I could get behind. The progressives, The progressives say that. Now, the longer she's in Congress, mm-hmm. the more likely it is that she will have to compromise on something or she will have to uh, uh, vote on something or make a decision that is seen as compromising her values. The, this generation who sees themselves as very progressive – they want exact purity. While 78-year-old white men, not just Bernie, but Biden included, he has a terrible uh, record with sexual harassment, with misogyny, with the crime bill and stuff like that. Women's rights. Women's rights. So, like, he, why is he not, you know what I mean? Well, even just the idea that, like, that with all of that, he is less of a risk. That's what I'm saying. Like, that, or, like, that people perceive him to be, Less of a risky choice. Yes. Because because even if you're like, well, I'd vote for a woman, everyone is like, but they wouldn't. You know, like there's yes. still this feeling of like, we're not ready. Yeah. America is not ready. We have to vote. Not me. I'm ready. But like no one else is ready. Yes. My partner thinks that the best chance uh, that we have of having a female president is if an old man chooses a female vice president and oh. then drops dead. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the only way. Um, That's why it's so important for uh, the the nominee to to pick a female vice president. A very young because one. Because I too, don't please. think that either of these men are are set for two terms. No. What and, would that look like? They're ninety. And we have a a field. Sadly, we had a a large, very diverse field of candidates that has somehow narrowed down mm-hmm. to two. Uh, old white men. Now you can say that it's unfair to lump Bernie in with old white men because his policies are very progressive and intersectional and take class into account. Arguably, d- could he say more about race? He absolutely could. Uh, and uh, he is also Jewish. And that would be a huge first for our country. We have not had a Jewish president. Uh, and so we can't you know, take away the excitement about that that I, I and other Jewish people feel. Uh, but we are now back to two 78-year-old men who uh, 
arguably both have blind spots with regards to misogyny and sexism and women's rights. And like we started out with a field with like Kamala Harris and she was held to a a standard of, well, that whole meme of like Kamala as a cop. And Mm -hmm. she got held to this standard because she was a prosecutor. Biden wrote the crime bill. Like, what are (laughs) we doing? Do you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing? Or like, you know, it's this thing that no woman will ever be perfect enough, but every guy who sucks can skate to the front. It's the last man standing. It's not that, like, people were so excited about Biden. It's just that everyone else got taken down. And, like, like, I don't want to say girl power to Klobuchar, who I think had very problematic views, and Marianne Williamson, who, again, has very problematic views. Uh, But, like, I think Kamala and Elizabeth Warren were better candidates than Biden. Mm -hmm. I can't think of another reason other than sexism and and racism in Kamala's case and also this idea of purity politics only applying to certain people and not applying to Biden and not applying to people that we view as as so moderate or so conservative that they're a lost cause versus like women on the progressive end or black people on the progressive end or uh, you know, Julian Castro or other people towards the progressive end that we feel we can push, 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 push. But we end up pushing them out of the race. Do you think it's important that people acknowledge that sexism is at play? Yes, but I don't think that's going to change any minds. Well, I just think that that like it's important to push back because like I think it's I think for someone to say, oh, it wasn't sexism. I think you have to be like, yes, it was. And you have to be OK with that. Like you have to oh, but recognize people... that that's what's happening. Yes. And then pe- the the argument that I've received back from friends of mine is um, it's not sexism because Bernie's plan actually is better for women. <laughs> I, yes, it's true. Which is like which is like his plan. Yes, his plan is good for women. Of course, universal health care would be amazing for women. So it's so this idea of preferring it's it's preferring the messenger. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To the same of the same there was a lot of stuff that I I think Warren could have done differently, but also there's a lot that I think – like Bernie's – that article in the New York Times about Bernie's personality, um, if you had written that about a woman, like her political career would be dead in the water. Did you read yeah, that? I didn't. It was like he's really hard to work with and he's gruff and this – like he doesn't compromise right. and this whole thing, which is like – I mean they, they said in – in the article, like, if you think he's a Larry David caricature, he's actually that times a thousand. Wow. I, I think that he's allowed to behave in a way that a female politician w- would have been voted out her first year in the... In, but right, so know? even that is sexism. Just that, like, the fact that, okay, maybe you would vote for a woman, but it has to be a certain type of woman. That, That's that, the thing. That the, that the field of what kind of woman would have an actual viable campaign is so much smaller than men. Yeah, and she would have to be very perfect. Like, my my partner was like, well, I don't think that would happen with AOC as long as she sticks to her morals and, until she starts running. If she has a clean record, then I don't see how anyone could be against it. And I was like, oh, you sweet baby angel. Right, like, that's to me is oh, so you, delusional. you sweet baby angel. Do like, you know what I mean? That's why I think we have to call it out. We but have a lot to say of that people it's happening. think that. Yeah. But that's the problem because, they're, know. you know, they're refusing to acknowledge what's happening. I know. And, uh... I, I was sort of like, well, we'll see, won't we? And then watch, like, where everyone's so happy, AOC runs, and then everybody's like, well, actually, there's, like, a few things. It's like she spends too much money on her hair. Yeah, exactly. And then that becomes a thing. And then, you know, uh, who the Crypt Keeper runs against her, and everyone's <laughs> like, we love the Crypt Keeper. He's safe. Yeah, not even, and I'm not hitting at Bernie with that. I'm hitting at, at Biden with that. It's the people that are going to go like, this Crip Keeper looks presidential. Mm-hmm. He doesn't yell like a Jew, and he doesn't look like, he doesn't like have lipstick like a lady. So we love him. Tamika, come on in and share so many views. Hello. Hello. So what are your uh, brief thoughts on everything that happened in the last couple hours? Um, I mean, this is a heavy episode. It's also a heavy day. Yeah, Um, we couldn't really hide that. And I kind of appreciate it because it makes these episodes more meaningful, hopefully, to listeners to hear what you're really going through. Thanks. Um, What did we learn? I learned everything. (laughs) Uh, I think that it was very interesting to learn that, like, the type of extremists that Andrew encountered is not what we would think. 
Yes. I, I, yes. And that it permeates so much more types of people than you would expect. Yeah. And that these people are uh, among you. They have mm-hmm. wives and kids and, you know, husbands. And it's not um, – I don't like the, the thing of, like, it's just basement trolls who live right. with their parents. Like, it's not. It's successful lawyers. It's, mm-hmm. like, successful people. And that is terrifying. <laughs> um the I think the funniest part was the references to Mars Attacks. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I know when I was writing them, I was like, Jake, what's a movie with aliens? <laughs> and he just said Mars Attacks. Yeah. Not like E.T. or Independence Day nope, or he said Men Mars in Attacks. Black. And then I looked up what the aliens from Mars Attacks look like and I thought, perfect. Yeah, they're real weird looking. Yeah, super weird. I actually had a funny a funny moment that I think you probably wouldn't have noticed. Uh, Andrew, I think, is the first guest to push his book and say, go to your public library. I loved that. Yeah. That was great. That I was, appreciate mm-hmm. that. Indie bound. I really, I did clock that. I was like, don't say the dreaded other word of where to get books. No. Don't say it. No. Okay. <laughs> what do we rate the episode? Uh, I rate it... Um, 10 out of 10 conspiracy theories. And I'm so glad that I have this platform to... Cause mass hysteria? (laughs) Yep. I say uh, 12 out of 7 hand washes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I say something very cheesy. 5 out of 5 heart-to-hearts. Aww. You keep us grounded. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon. And our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Thank you to Andrew Morantz for being our guest. And you know, everyone, call your mom. Yeah, call your mom. And if um, you can't do that, call a friend. That's nice. Stitcher.